Well, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37 this evening. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. As you are turning there, I'd like to introduce this passage with the following question. Imagine uh, a family member, a friend who doesn't identify as a Christian comes up to you and asks you the softball of a question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you have no time to, uh, to think of a response. You have to give your initial reaction. What would you say? Well, Jesus, in our passage, is asked this very question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Let's listen in to hear how Jesus responds to this very important inquiry. So Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Please pay careful attention, for this is the word of our Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, before we read this task, this text, I asked you how you would respond if you were posed with this same question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, my assumption is that your initial response would have been quite a bit different than the response that Jesus gives here in this passage. Jesus' response jumps off the page on first reading, doesn't it? 
Not only does it, is it quite a bit different than what our initial response would be, it even seems on first reading contrary to what our first response would be. I would imagine that our response would have something to do with faith and belief and, and trust in Jesus and his work for us. But Jesus' response doesn't touch on any of those things. Rather, he points him to the law of God and says, do this and you shall live. So this evening, I would like us to consider Jesus' seemingly counterintuitive response to this lawyer. And Lord willing, we will see that that Jesus is tapping into not only one of the, the central aspects of his mission here on earth, but also one of the central themes in all of Scripture. Well, this passage, as you know, begins with this lawyer. And this lawyer wants to put Jesus to the test. And what better question to ask this renowned Jewish teacher than, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The ultimate question, is it not? And Jesus responds by, again, pointing him to the law. Well, you know the law. How do you read it? And this lawyer quite accurately uh, summarizes both Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, which we have recently read in the reading of the law, as well as from Leviticus 19, verse 18. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our faculties and our neighbor as our self. Jesus responds as, You've answered correctly, do this and you shall live. Now Jesus isn't mincing words here. He's he's not saying one thing and meaning the other. He's not saying this with a wink wink. I don't really mean this. No, he means this. This is the truth of God. Do this and you shall live. And Jesus isn't isn't saying that you will live in the sense you'll have a blessed life here and now. You'll enjoy the the joy and the peace of, of the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's getting at primarily. He's saying, do this, and you will live eternally. He's answering directly the lawyer's question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do this, and you will inherit eternal life. In fact, notice the repetition of this word do, or this verb do, in our passage. Not only do we see this in verse 25 in the question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Then in verse 28, Jesus' response, do this and live. And then at the the conclusion of our narrative in verse 37, Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Same verb in the original language. So this evening, I want us to simply unpack this basic proposition that Jesus is giving us. The path to eternal life is the path of doing the law. That's the point that that Jesus is wanting us to to discern from this text. The path to eternal life is the path of doing the law. Well, as I mentioned, Jesus' answer on first reading, it, it seems to come out of left field. It's unexpected, it's striking, it's counterintuitive. If I were to ask you, what is, one of, what is one of the main themes in all of Scripture? 
You may say Jesus, but that's not quite fair. If I pressed you a bit more, you might point to motifs or themes such as blood or sacrifice or atonement. Expiation, that is, to, that is to say, the doing away of the guilt of our sin. Now, all of those things are, are true. They're, they're prominent themes. They're very important. But equally as important to those themes is the theme of work. Or you could say, doing the law. I would like to spend a few moments considering how Jesus' response is, is consonant with the rest of Scripture. That is to say, Jesus' response is not coming out of left field. Rather, it resonates with the main storyline of our Bibles. So if you think back with me for a few moments to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the very opening of our Bibles, we, the, one of the first things we learn about God is that he's a working, resting God. He works six days, and then he enters his seventh day eternal Sabbath rest. It's notable. This is one of the first things that we learn about our God as we open our Bibles. He's a working, resting God. Well, the pinnacle of his creation is no doubt the creation of mankind. And we read that man is made in his image and likeness. Have you ever thought for a moment what that means? What does it mean to be made in the image of the invisible God? We are physical, mater- uh, material, earthy beings, as it were. What does it mean to be made in the very image of the transcendent and invisible God, creator of the heavens and the earth? Well, if we restrict ourselves to Genesis 1 and 2, a pretty good guess would be that we were made to work for a rest. God is presented as the working, resting God, and thus we, as his image bearers, are also called to be working, resting creatures. And that's confirmed. We read that God creates Adam and immediately gives him a task. He is called literally to work the garden. And the job description of this work is he's called to exercise dominion over the animals, over the garden. He's called to speak authoritatively, as God spoke authoritatively, whatever he named the animals, that, which is, that, that was its name. We're, call, uh, we're told that he was called to obey the commandments and the word of God. Not only those which have been specially revealed do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but even the laws which were inscribed upon his heart in creation. He had a work to do. Or you could say he was called to do the law. The job description that God had set before him. And Adam wasn't called just to work indefinitely. Think about how miserable that existence would be. If you had a job and there was no end point, no prospect of rest, it was just work continually. That's hellish to think about, is it not? So Adam was called to work, yes, but he was called to work with the prospect of earning rest. God's eternal Sabbath rest. And that tree of life, which he would have no doubt seen every day as he was carrying forth his work, was a reminder of what lied ahead of him at the completion of his work. Of course, we we know that Adam failed in this work. He didn't earn God's eternal Sabbath rest. He was exiled from the garden. Nevertheless, this requirement, 
that this work needs to be accomplished in order for mankind to enter the rest of God, that still stands. God does not relax that requirement. Throughout the Old Testament, we, we learn that God is a God who's impartial. He will not acquit the guilty or the wicked. It's abomination to the Lord to justify the ungodly. In fact, the reason why Israel, part of the reason why Israel had the Sabbath day on the seventh day of the week was to remind them that this paradigm, this standard, still persists. God requires the doing of the law in order to enter his Sabbath rest. We come to the New Testament. Paul in Romans chapter 2 Verse 13 says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are justified, but the doers, the doers of the law who will be justified. Saying the same thing that Jesus is saying in in Luke chapter 10. The doers of the law will be justified. That's what Jesus is saying is very consonant with the rest of Scripture. Now, there's a temptation every age to begin to define for ourselves the work that God calls us to do. As image bearers of God who have his law written upon our hearts, we think we all recognize that there's a standard that we are called to do a certain work. But we want to relax that standard. We want to write our own job description rather than looking to the job description that God has given us. And we relax the severity of the law. But we need to remind ourselves that this work is defined by the job description. The job description is articulating the law of God. The doing is meant to be conformed to God's law. Let's just reflect a few moments on, on what God's law calls us to. The lawyer accurately says that we are called to love him with all of our mind. Have you ever thought for a moment all the thoughts that that flit through your mind that are impure, lustful, judgmental, prideful, worrisome, selfish? Things that you probably can't even control. Evidence that you are imperfect, stained with sin. We're called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. Think of all the negative emotions which flood your heart on on a daily basis. From anxiety to frustration to anger to discontentedness. Hatred. Despair. Deadness in the things of God. How many of you are distracted right now as you're hearing the word of God proclaimed to you? We're called to love the Lord our God with all of our strength. Think of the lack of zeal we all have to love and serve our neighbor and the zeal we have to love and please ourselves. It's quite extraordinary. We're also called to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the lawyer here we see that he, this is the point of the law that he wants some explanation from Jesus on. Uh, We read that the lawyer seeking to justify himself asks, well, who is my neighbor? 
He wants to know, who is he expected to love? So Jesus unfolds this parable before him. And he says, there's this man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho and highway robbers beat him up, left him for dead on the side of the road. And three individuals passed by him. A Levite, a priest, and a Samaritan. The priest and the Levite, they very conveniently see this man, go to the other side of the road and keep on walking. But the Samaritan, the unlikely hero of this story, is the one who stops, who cares for this man. Who loves this man whom he he does not even know. And so the point of this parable is that the lawyer's question was wrong-headed to begin with. The lawyer should not have asked, who is my neighbor? Because the the implicit assumption behind that question is that there are those who are not my neighbors, who I'm not expected to love. The lawyer wants to know not necessarily who he is to love, but who he doesn't have to love. And Jesus is saying, we should rather ask, who are we to be a neighbor to? Or to put it another way, we are to be a neighbor to everyone with whom we come into contact with. That time in Judaism, it was very, uh, it was very uh, a, a clear rule that they lived by was that you, you loved your own. You didn't love those who were outside the covenant community, and especially in this time in Judaism, there was many factions, and so you really only loved those within your faction. And Jesus is saying, no, everybody with whom you come in contact with should be an, your neighbor, an object of your love. Christian, non-Christian. Jesus says elsewhere, we are called to love our enemies. And that's hard. There's many people that we all personally find it very difficult to love and serve in a self-sacrificial manner. This is a tall task that Jesus has set before us, but this is the work that God has called us all to do, and it's by this work that we will inherit eternal life. That's what Jesus is saying. The path to eternal life is the path of of doing the law. I titled this sermon Evangelism 101. And upon hearing this, you know, some may think, Well, there's some logic to that. That makes sense. But I don't really even believe that something like eternal life even exists. If we're honest with ourselves, if someone in our own life asks us this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It probably means we've already been asked the question, why should I even believe that there's a God who exists who grants eternal life to some and eternal death to others? I'd like to briefly comment on that. More specifically, how we all naturally conceive of eternal life. We all naturally conceive of eternal life. What I mean by that is every human being has some conception of of the good life, some vision of the good life. This conception may be conscious, it may be precognitive, it may lie in their intuitions. But what happens is that their emotions, their thoughts, their wills are constrained to the attainment of this good life. 
That is to say, all of their faculties, their heart, mind, soul, and strength are constrained to obtaining their vision, their conception of the good life. For instance, let's, let's say someone's ultimate ideal of the good life is a certain job with a certain income that affords a certain lifestyle. That was it for them. Well, they will naturally pursue that good life with their whole being. They'll think about it. They'll be emotionally wrapped up in it. And of course, they will pursue it with their wills and with their strength. Now, some people's vision of the good life is not objectively good at all. It can be quite destructive. You can think of this in terms of addictions. But yet, it's their version of the good life nonetheless, and they pursue it. In fact, if you just observe how someone spends their time, what do they talk about? What do they get happy about? What do they get irritated about, angry about? You could probably come up with a pretty good guess at what their vision of the good life is, what they're seeking after, what they're working towards. This is natural to all of us. I believe that this paradigm is evidence that we all retain the image of God in a corrupted, twisted, perverted way. If you recall our our previous uh, discussion on, on Genesis 1 and 2, God is a working and resting God, and we are created in his image, and thus we naturally work for a rest. And for Adam, he was working for the ultimate vision of the good life, the eternal Sabbath rest of God. But after man's fall into sin, we haven't lost the image of God. We haven't lost this, this paradigm of, of working and resting. It's just been perverted, twisted, corrupted. So we all still naturally work for a rest. It's just that our conception of the good life isn't life eternal, God's eternal Sabbath rest. It's a perverted, this worldly, idolatrous form of life eternal. To use uh, C.S. Lewis's analogy in a, in a little bit different way, we, instead of having our, our aim set uh, at a holiday at the sea, we are content at pursuing um, playing in, in the mud puddles. Ironically, people's vision of the good life, when it's this worldly, when it's idolatrous, it's like a mirage. Once they get the job, once they get the income, the lifestyle, the good life just keeps moving on ahead of them. It's never attainable. And this working, resting paradigm is inscribed on our hearts in a way that, 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 that's similar to how the laws of gravity are innate to this natural order. So my point is that we all naturally, believe or unbeliever, we all naturally conceive of eternal life. That is to say, we have some conception of the good life. We just need to have these conceptions recalibrated and recognize that the actual good life is infinitely greater than whatever whatever uh, good life is conceived of in, the, in, in this world. So to summarize what we've, uh, how, where we've gone so, uh, so far, Jesus' response is that the path to eternal life is the path of doing the law. And we all naturally conceive of, of eternal life. We have that, that eternity inscribed upon our hearts. 
And so how does Jesus fit into all of this? Well, Scripture interprets Scripture. So Jesus doesn't here fill in all the gaps for us, fill in all the holes, but we don't necessarily need or expect him to because this is one unified book. It's like when you open up a novel, you don't expect one passage to explain everything about the narrative. Ever since our parents first fall into sin, we have been unable, wholly unable, as we have already considered, to perfectly do this work, to live up to the job description which God has given us. We can't do the law. And thus, as a consequence, we can't. We can't inherit eternal life. We can't earn the rest, the true rest, which God has has made us for. So in this passage, the reason that Jesus is giving this lawyer the law of God is purposeful. He's giving the lawyer the law of God in order to crush him, for him to truly recognize his utter sin and misery and realize that he can't do the law. He can't inherit life eternal on his own strength and merits. And thus, Jesus intends this this lawyer to turn to him and recognize why he came to this earth. He came to this earth not just to die and be the all-atoning sacrifice, but he came to live. He came to do the work which Adam failed to do, which Israel failed to do, which this lawyer can't do. That's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. He says that one of the purposes of the law of God is to be a pedagogue, a teacher unto Christ. To teach us why we need Jesus and we can't fulfill the demands of the law on our own merits. And so Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born under the law, the same law which says do this and live, don't do this and be cursed. Christ was born under that law in order to redeem those who are under that same law, the weight of that law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus came to do this work but he linked his paycheck to our bank account. We get the inheritance. We get the the riches of his righteousness and holy merits. He came to do the law so that we might live. He came to do this work, the work that we couldn't do, so that we might earn the rest that we couldn't achieve on our own. You remember our call to worship in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, Come to me, all those who are weary and heavy laden. Weary by the work of the law. The the law which says, do this and you shall live. Come to me. I am the giver of rest. Because I earn the rest. I graciously will bestow this rest to all who come to me in faith. Let me ask you, have you found rest, this true rest, for your souls? Oftentimes we can feel as if you know, we're, we're a hamster wheel. And it just keeps going faster and faster and faster. So have you found true rest, the rest which Jesus came to this earth to accomplish? Rest for your souls. 
Well, just because Jesus delivers the, this rest, it doesn't mean that he relaxes his law. He doesn't do away with his law. Rather, he transforms his law. Law, first and foremost, says do this and live. But then, for those of us who've been incorporated into Christ, who've embraced his gospel, the law is refracted. And it comes to us, and rather than saying do this and live, it says live and do this. Live and do this. The threats, the, the curses of the law have been taken out. This is the law of gratitude that, that shows up in, in the latter half of many of Paul's epistles. So we're still called to love the Lord our God with all of our faculties. We're still called to love our neighbor as ourselves, but we do this out of gratitude, without fear of God's condemnation. So believer, this law, it, it can no longer threaten or curse you. If you ever hear teaching in which the, the law of God is presented in such a way that it, it destabilizes your security or identity in Christ, that's erroneous teaching. Romans chapter 10, verse 4, which we read in our Declaration of Pardon, says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What Paul is saying is this, this use of the law, which says do this and live, don't do this and be cursed, has been fulfilled. And that's why Paul can say for the believer, you are no longer under the law in this sense, but you're under grace. Well, beloved in the Lord, we all conceive of, of life eternal. And the path to this eternal life is indeed the path of, of doing the law. So you either can, can do it yourselves, probably won't go very well for you, or you can turn to Jesus who says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray.